0: it's great to be here I am gonna jump right in we are in this counterformed series and the heart of this is um, just what I believe this year God is calling us into as a church family but also just as the body and especially in our western church he's calling us to to actually leave Our cultural Christianity. He's calling us to leave our sort of performance and veneer-based Christianity, and he's inviting us deeper into his presence, and that's through, uh, in part, formational practices being counterformed by his Spirit in our lives. Today, we're talking about biblical confession, and... uh, what that means to be counterformed by biblical confession in a culture of curated image and character. We live in a culture that's obsessed with image. We're obsessed with appearance. We're obsessed with uh, appearing just a certain way on our social feeds, We're obsessed with how we pose for pictures and and, uh, getting that Twitter or that Instagram or Snapchat or like, I don't even know what else is out there today, but TikTok, right? That's apparently a big thing. I wouldn't know, but um, getting that stuff exactly right. Like, how many of you have done like 10 or 15 trial posts before you actually get the right perfect one and then you send that out? Put up your hand. You guys are liars. That's, I know that that's not true. I'm not the only one. But we're obsessed with with cultivating and curating an image and a persona of ourselves That we want the world to see. We we want them to see this part of our life. We want them to see this area of our family. We want them to see our kids a certain way. We want them to see us as parents a certain way. And we carefully curate this. And we obsess over it. And biblical confession is going to counterform us from that. And introduce into our life things like humility and vulnerability. Like I've said already, these are the things that actually attract the heart of God and the presence of God. The truth is that Jesus has a vision for your life. I got a whole bunch of slides today. Do you got those, Antonio? Are they in there? Thanks, Spencer. I got like, I, I, I stayed up really late doing all of these slides. So we're gonna go through these. But Jesus has a vision for your life. And his vision is a vision that comes with deep fulfillment. His vision carries a deep God-given purpose. He has an assignment and a purpose for your life, whether you realize it or not. Jesus has a vision and a purpose for your life. Jesus has a vision that unlocks your God-given potential. Like the vision of God for your life will actually unlock areas of your personality, your gifting, your character that you didn't even know you had. It will supernaturally unlock potential that has been dormant in your life. The vision of Jesus for your life is to do that. It's a vision that requires his supernatural power. You can't accomplish his vision for your life on your own. It demands actually his influence and his power. It's a vision that will quench your deepest thirst and longing. It will bring you the the greatest satisfaction and joy you've ever had and experienced. His vision for your life will satisfy your hunger for significance and meaning. The vision that Jesus has for you is dynamic. It's active, it's moving, it's going somewhere. The vision he has requires his deep work in you for the sake of the world around you. It's part of how God is reshaping even the the vision and the mission of our church, which is to cultivate the deep work of Jesus in us for the sake of the world around us. Like Jess said today, it's not just about you. The vision that God has for your life is meant to impact the people around you. It's meant to bring transformation around you, the vision that Jesus has for you requires that you be formed into his image. We've covered these before, but I just wanna to read to you. The heart of God for your life and mine in Romans eight twenty nine, says this, for God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. He chose them to become like his son. So that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Galatians 4:19. this is Paul writing, "My dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again, and they will continue until Christ is fully developed or formed into your life." That's where we get the, the biblical term for spiritual formation is the forming of the image of God in our life. And that's not an abstract thing. It's not a, an ethereal or, or kooky spiritual thing. It's the, a very practical, principled, and intentional way to live in the kingdom. Jesus has a vision for your life. The problem is that Satan has a vision for your life too. He's got a, a, a very robust vision for your life. You can throw that one up, Antonio. It's a vision where he promises the world. Next one. It's a vision where he promises the world but ends in agonizing isolation. Satan's vision for your life promises freedom but ends in slavery. It's a vision that promises to fulfill your every desire but ends in bondage. It's a vision that promises attention and praise but ends in disgrace and shame. It's a vision that promises prosperity but leads to poverty. Satan has a vision for your life that promises happiness now with an end road of hopelessness. And he has a vision for your life that promises to bring, uh, to bring life that instead brings brokenness and death. He has a vision for your life. The question that you and I have to ask is whose vision are we living into? There's only two options. There's no third kingdom that we can be aligned with. We're either aligned with the vision in the kingdom of Jesus in our life, or we're aligned with the vision in the kingdom of Satan in our life. There's no other option. There's no neutral. There's no Switzerland in this arrangement. So the question we need to ask is whose vision are you living into? Jesus said this about the devil. John 8, he was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character for he's a liar and the father of lies. The reason it's so hard to live out Jesus's vision for your life? That's a great question. Why is it so hard then? Why is it so hard to grow spiritually? Why is it so hard to grow to maturity? The reason it's so hard is that there are two kingdoms competing with differing visions for your life. There's two kingdoms at conflict, and you and I are the center of that conflict. The human race is the center. You know, the devil can't touch God. Did you know that? There's nothing Satan can do to harm God. So what does he do? He takes out all of his vengeance and wrath and anger and hatred on humanity. The way that the devil gets to God is through you and I. So he expresses all of his vitriol against God on humanity. He can't get to God outside of humanity. And so like he always does, he takes God's most prized possession, your life and my life. And our lives become the battlefield of the two kingdoms that are at work in the world. The reason it's so hard is Jesus's vision requires spiritual growth and maturity that comes through formational influence in the kingdom. It requires intentionality. You do not grow spiritually just by showing up to church every week. You just don't, you'll you'll get to a certain level but you will not grow deeper in the things of God by just attending church. It takes intention, and we've been talking about these spiritual practices. We see that in Jesus's life, he did three things. He modeled three things for us, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Second reason it's so hard for us to live out Jesus's vision is Satan's vision has much more significant force on our lives. It, we're, we're, we're breathing its air. We're embedded into it. That's what Paul calls, uh, or what I call, Paul's uh, Ephesians 2 1 to 3, the unholy trinity. So here's what Satan does. Ephesians 2, 1-3, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. So how does the vision of Satan for our lives actually come into fruition. Here's a, this is from John Mark Comer. It's a great way to summarize this Ephesians passage. So we hear deceptive ideas that come from the enemy. He's the father of lies. So into your mind, into your heart, come deceptive ideas half-truths, twisting of scripture, all kinds of things, deceptive ideas which then play to our disordered desires. These deceptive ideas then play to these human-based desires in us that are disordered, that's our flesh. So Paul Paul is saying that uh, the, the formation of the world around us which has so much impact comes through the deceptive ideas of the devil that play to our disordered desires, that become normalized in sinful society. And we see this pattern all the time. That's why right now in society, we we, uh, agree with and and give permission for things that we never would have 50 years ago. You know, I, I heard a little while ago, I'm not sure where it landed, but in California, they were working to legalize pedophilia. Where does that come from? That comes from this pattern. Deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires in the human soul that then become normalized in sinful society. How do things become so normalized? It's this pattern. And so Jesus has a vision for your life, but so does the devil. And he's using this with great effect in our lives. It's coming through our educational institutions. It comes through government. It comes through social media. It comes through the media channels. We're saturated in it. It's so hard to grow in our lives spiritually because this requires nothing of us. It takes no intention. We wake up and we get hit with it every day. It's so hard to grow because we have to use intention in our spiritual life to be cultivated and shaped by the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of this world around us. So these deceptive ideas lead to disordered desires which become normalized in sinful society. You and I are being shaped. Again, the question is whose vision for your life are you living into? And if you say your own, then you're actually not on the Jesus side of the equation. Because you can't trust your heart, just like I can't. Scripture says we can't. I don't know why my voice is cracking, but that's okay. (laughs) Reminds me of my favorite character in The Simpsons. You know that teenage uh, fast food guy? Hey, Mr. Simpson, would you like fries with that shake? (laughs) Anyway. Anyway. I digress. <laughs> all right, I can't wait till my boys, they're, Eli's close, he's very close. All right, so we're all being shaped, it's either intentional or unintentional. So we're being shaped unintentionally by the stories we believe. This is the cultural narrative all around us. It's Hollywood. This is the mythical stories of Hollywood and our media and the culture. We're being shaped by our habits. You and I have ingrained habits in us. Like what you do just naturally and automatically as you wake up every day, as you go about your business, when you go to Tim Hortons specifically at the same time every day to get the same thing. Cheddar bagel toasted with butter, all right? And you're shaped by the relationships around you, the people that you surround yourself with. That's all happening unintentionally. But if we wanna actually begin to live into Jesus's vision for our life, we're gonna actually need to get intentional and we're gonna need to be shaped by scripture, not standing over scripture, telling it what it means, but being shaped by scripture, being shaped by intentional engagement with spiritual practices and shaped by community. So Jesus is calling us to a counterformed life. But his vision for our life is being violently confronted by the kingdom of darkness. We have to decide whose vision for life are we going to live out. You and I are being formed spiritually. The question is who is doing the forming? Is it the work of Jesus and the presence of the spirit? Or is it our culture? your own desires, your own flesh, or the kingdom of darkness. Jesus is inviting us to be counterformed today. We're talking about biblical confession. We live in a culture, again, obsessed with image and the presentation of character. I'm gonna read to you 2 Samuel 12, verse 7 to 13. I'm gonna invite you just to stand with me as I read this. Give your legs a break. 2 Samuel 12, 7 to 13. Then Nathan said to David, Nathan was a prophet in Israel. David was the king at this time. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Then to cover up the adultery, he invited her wife, or her husband, sorry, back from the front lines of battle, Uriah, And he invited Uriah back from the front lines of battle so that Uriah would go and sleep with his wife and David's sin of adultery would be covered up if she became pregnant. But Uriah came back from battle and he wouldn't go sleep with his wife. He said, how can I enjoy sexual intimacy with my wife when my fellow soldiers are fighting on the front lines? I'm not gonna do it. He slept in the temple. So David's plan was thwarted So then David sent a message to Uriah's commanding officer and said, put Uriah on the front lines, the very front lines of battle, so he'll be killed. And his commanding officer did that. And Uriah was killed, and David covered up his sin. And this is where we come into 2 Samuel 12. Nathan said to David, You are that man, and he's talking about a vision he had. The Lord God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for your sin. You can have a seat. So what is biblical confession? This is a story where the hidden life of David is now being exposed. What is biblical confession? Number one, biblical confession is to say, to bring to light, or to admit. Biblical confession at its most basic level is an admission or acknowledgement of sin. And we find this in both the Old and New Testament. Dallas Willard, in several of his books, he's got actually a dictionary, so you can understand his meanings in his books, but One of the women that compiled the dictionary, Elaine O'Rourke says this, "'Confession is the activity of humble transparency, "'sharing our deepest weaknesses, failures, "'beliefs, and burdens with one or more trusted others. "'Confession is admitting to the condition of your soul.'" So confession is different than profession. When you profess something, you publicly acknowledge something that's true. When you confess, you're admitting, you're bringing into the light something that is going on in your life in the depth of your soul and in your heart. Dallas Willard in another area says, authentic confession is the acknowledgement of an agreement with the truth of a situation. It's aligning oneself with the real state of affairs. It's being honest and humble and vulnerable and saying, hey, This is actually what's going on in my heart. Or this is what has been going on in secret and in private in my life. This is what's taking place in my emotional life right now. Martin Luther said it this way, therefore when I urge you to go to confession, I'm simply urging you to be a Christian interesting coming from him. Of all people, we would probably go, why would he say that? You know, Martin Luther in the Reformation was, uh, was standing up against the abuses that were going on in the church at the time and selling penance and all of these kinds of things. But he wholeheartedly believed in the necessity for a confessional life. Another way to say it just in my own words would be confession is a brutally honest, specific, and unvarnished bringing into the light of the things of our heart that we have and have not acted on. See, biblical confession doesn't, uh, doesn't pretty it up. Biblical confession doesn't minimize. It's a brutal honest, bringing to the surface of the stuff that's going on in our heart, whether we've acted on it or not. That's not the issue. The heart is the issue in confession. It's admitting our deepest thoughts, desires, intentions, beliefs, words, and hopes, our failures and our burdens to God and a community of others we trust. Proverbs 28, 13. This is a verse to memorize if you haven't already. People who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. You know what's interesting? That word prosper, I've given you the definition here in the Hebrew. It means to advance. It means to force entry, cut through, to rush to, succeed, to go over to attack, to fall upon, to flourish, to cause victory, to be useful and to prevail. That word for prosper is not a, a monetary prospering. It's not financial gain. It's the ability to break through. So the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, is saying, if you are walking with hidden secret things in your life, you will not have the ability to break through The stuff that the enemy is throwing at you, the stuff that you're finding yourself habitually turning to, walking in habitual sin, in secrecy and in hiddenness will actually undermine your spiritual power and authority and you will not be able to prevail over the enemy when he has leverage in your life through secret sin that has not been brought into the light. Principle number one, you can write this down if you want. Principle one of biblical confession, hidden sin or secrets give access to the enemy and bring bondage and spiritual weakness. He who conceals his sin will not prosper, will not be able to break through and have victory in his life. So that first principle is so key. Hidden sin gives the enemy access to your life and it also gives him authority in your life. Hidden sin in your life actually gives him a legal right to inflict harm, pain, suffering, uh, uh, the whole gamut. But the enemy lies to us. And he says, you need to protect. You can't tell anybody about this in your life. You've got to protect yourself. You've got to protect your reputation. You've got to protect your image in the office. You have to protect your family. That's a huge lie of the enemy. If you come clean with this, if you're honest about this, your family's going to suffer. He always dangles that over us. Your reputation is gonna tank. Your, your financial stability is gonna tank. He throws all of these things in our face to tempt us to forego bringing our whole life into the light of Christ. But the truth is, that he, the truth the enemy doesn't want you to know is that when you walk in the light fully before God and man, You strip him of his power and authority and you become that kind of person that can actually break through enemy lines. The stuff that he throws up in front of you, you can actually work through, you can walk through, you can break through, you can prevail in your life. Remember, he's a liar and the father of lies. The enemy uses four primary tools in this area. Pride, what will people think of me? Fear? What am I going to lose? What's the cost of actually being open and honest about this? What am I going to lose? Shame? No one will love me anymore. Everyone will see me and look at me different. God himself wouldn't love me if I brought this into the light. And isolation? He wants to separate you and get you to believe that what you're struggling through, the stuff that you've done in your past or even present that you're deeply, deeply convicted about or ashamed about, he wants you to believe it's just your problem and you're the only one dealing with it. He wants to isolate you and separate you. And so he uses these tools in your life and in my life all the time, pride, fear, shame, and isolation. No one will see you the same way if you come clean. Your marriage is over if you come clean. Your relationships are over. Your your kids, they're not gonna wanna be around you. Whatever it is, he uses all kinds of these tricks to get us to walk in darkness. Principle number two for biblical confession. Hidden sin or secrets can block you from receiving healing and deliverance from hardship. I wanna read to you from James. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Verse 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other and underline this, circle it, square it, highlight it, so that you may be healed. unconfessed and hidden sin or secrets can literally block you from receiving the physical healing and ministry of the spirit you so deeply long for and need. I don't understand all of the principles of the kingdom of God in the spiritual realm, but he's clearly tying a confessional life, biblical confession, bringing sin into the light, bringing the stuff that no one knows about that we've never talked about into the light so that actually the work and ministry of the Spirit can be accomplished in your life. For some of you, the reason that you haven't been healed for the thing that you're praying for, it might be because you're carrying hidden things. I don't know for sure, but Scripture actually creates a link between these two what would you be willing to do in your life to actually receive the healing you've been asking God for or the deliverance from bondage that you've been asking him for? Matthew 3, in those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was repent of your sins and turn to God. Repentance and confession are not the same thing. So, Repentance in scripture means to actually do the opposite, to think differently and act differently. It means turning the other way. So if I'm tempted to go like this, it means I actually go, no, Jesus, I'm walking this way. Repentance is not saying I'm sorry. Repentance is living different. Repentance is not going back to that website online. Repentance is setting up uh, guardrails in your life. Repentance is not going to the casino when you're, you're feeling uh, you know, like you got a winning streak coming on, but that's been a trouble area for your life. Repentance is doing the opposite of what's been leading you away from God. Confession is different. And so John is saying, turn around. Stop doing what you're doing and turn back and walk in the direction of God, walk in alignment with God. Verse four, uh, John's clothes were woven with, from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist for food. He ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from all of Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. In another translation, it says, the people were baptized by John in the Jordan, openly admitting their sins. That word in the Greek for admitting their sins is a compound word, and it means to agree, admit, or confess. But that prefix on that Greek word adds that the force is out loud, is in the public. Here's a Uh, an absolutely, this may be offensive to you actually, but an absolutely important principle of biblical confession, principle three, biblical confession is not private. It requires biblical community. So here's what I just gently wanna push back on. And I've lived this life, most of my Christian life, for you to confess your sin privately to Jesus is not enough. That's where you need to start, absolutely. But biblical confession, if we follow a biblical model, it involves other people in the body of Christ, people we trust, all right? So I don't want you to just kind of get up after the service and walk around just confessing everything to everyone. But biblical confession requires bringing other people into the mix. You cannot exist as a private, individual Christian. There's no reference point for individuality in the body of Christ in scripture. We've we've bought into this brutal lie of the enemy in our Western church that I'll deal with the things of God privately in my own heart. And we never bring it into the light with other people. And scripture's very clear, whether it's this reference here in Matthew, whether it's James 5 that we just read, or the story of David and Nathan, biblical confession requires that we bring our stuff into the light with God and with others that we trust. That is the place where we begin to break the bondage of the enemy. When we are walking before others, fully known, fully known by God and fully known by others. When you are walking in a way that you're not worried about the other shoe dropping, who's gonna check your internet history, guys? If you've covered all of your tracks from what you've been doing, the places that you've been going that you haven't been honest in telling other people about, You think that you are actually freeing yourself by keeping that stuff concealed or just dealing privately with God on it, but you're still living in cyclical bondage to sin and you can't break free because you have not brought the body into the mix. And this is where as a church in our Western world, we need to demolish our our celebrity pastor fixation and putting people up on these pedestals and creating this cultural veneer that our lives are all put together, that our families are put together, that everything's perfect and everything's good and we can handle every situation and that we have the capacity to deal with the stuff that's coming at us. We don't. And we need each other. We need people that we can be brutally honest with. And not just about the stuff we've done, the stuff we've wanted to do. The stuff that's been buried deep in our heart, the desires that are buried deep in us that don't align with the heart of God, that's the stuff that God wants to bring into the light. Not to shame you, not to ridicule you, not to be angry with you, but to free you from the bondage of the enemy. Biblical confession requires community. I'm going to just invite my good friend up, uh, Andrew, for a minute here. And uh, Andrew and I have been friends for a long time, and he's a pastor at Wellspring, and he's been on a sabbatical for a few months, which is why he can be here. <laughs> they thought it was appropriate after 20 years, or how, was it 20, or Something like that. to give him a bit of a break, so thankfully. But Andrew and I have been walking together in biblical confession for years now. And I feel like most of the time, it's been me coming to him and saying, hey, like I'm a total failure in this area. I'm such a loser, (laughs) whatever it is. But we've experienced that. And I thought it would be helpful for you just to hear from us just briefly about that. And specifically when we talked yesterday uh, we talked about a specific car ride. We'll get to my stuff, but um, we talked about a car ride that we were on with Roy Uman coming back from Ottawa. Is that on, Daniel? No. It's on. Okay. My mistake. There we go. Um, so, talk to me, to us, just about that car ride sure. and what God was doing, because that was a low part of your life. That was a really low point in your life. And you had two of us for five hours. <laughs> Uninterrupted to just actually process with. So what did that actually
1: mean for you? I had you guys whether I wanted you or not. Yeah, that's true. Nobody was looking for my opinion no. that day. <laughs> You know, it was a really dark moment in my life because what was being, uh, for lack of a better word, assaulted inside of me was... Uh, and what was really coming to surface was a lie that I had really been struggling with for a long time about my own identity and my own security uh, in the roles that I played as as a pastor, as a worship leader. You know, you think that you enjoy some type of or a modicum of success that people would imagine that you're enjoying and that you're all good, you know, inside you're okay. But... Um, that was really being thwarted in that moment. That was just a really hard time, and I was really believing that I really didn't have anything to offer, that, that in spite of what I was, might have appeared to be gifted at, I just thought that, you know, it was done. I was done, I was over, and that I just needed to pack it in. Do you remember, that was? this was years and years ago, I don't remember how many years, but w-
0: what did you receive as you were just sort of like, just expressing the depth of your heart in that moment, I remember that it was a very intense conversation, but what, how did God work even in the midst of uh, Roy
1: and I and our, our contribution to that conversation? I wanna say something funny here, but I won't, so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I say inappropriately funny things all the time.
1: <laughs> I felt totally judged, no. Um, what I felt, honestly and genuinely, was that both of you with the love, character, force, and the authority of God's spirit spoke directly to the lie in my life and confronted it. And, and because you're so familiar with it, because you're so familiar, that it's, a part of, it's a part of your identity. You know, that that lie becomes a part of who you are, that I needed somebody, I needed my two friends, people that were invested in my life more than just doing music together, who were invested in my life as people. And, you know, like, you know, you and I talk a lot, but I would pick up the phone now, even though Roy lives away, I would call him as well. But, um invested in my life to say to me and confront, not only confront me and the lies that I was believing, but the lies that the devil was speaking into my life on a repetitive basis, um, and so it just, you know, really, in the, those moments, opened my eyes to see what it, what it was for what it really was. Yeah,
0: and I, I don't remember exactly what was said, but I do remember that on You both, suck, that's what you said. Yeah, I did not. <laughs> On on both sides of that, there was was an honesty and and God in his wisdom gave us a chance to confront that lie that Andrew was believing that he couldn't even see and actually begin a process in his life to actually find healing and restoration from that. If we fast forward a bunch of years, just a couple of years ago, uh, I sat down with you at Starbucks on Thoroldstone. And I, and, and I asked for a couple hours of his time, and I did a full-life, like, unvarnished confessional. Every single thing that I could think of and that the Holy Spirit brought to mind, like, I, as my friend, I don't want to live with any hiddenness at all. And that, for me, was a transformative day. Like, absolutely transformative. To know that there was someone who loved me and was for me, regardless of the choices I've made and the things I've done and the shame and guilt that I've carried in my life, that that there was somebody who could listen to all of that and still walk with me, had a profound impact on my life. I don't know what that day was like for you, um, but you just listened, mostly. You asked a few questions, but you just listened. What? What did that moment for you kind of um, do in our friendship, our relationship? What did you sense God,
1: God doing in that moment? For me, uh, that moment was, I really felt honored to be a part of that. To, that you would trust me with all of that in your life. That it only further solidified our friendship, our relationship. And we are not comfortable using this word all the time in this context. But it grew our intimacy, our ability to trust one another, to be there for one another, for me to be able to share anything with him. And I didn't think worse of him. I I actually felt better. I felt more proud of you. I felt, uh, you know, I esteemed you. I thought, man, this is a lot of character to be willing to share all of these things with me um you know and and i think that i know it's not that i think or i just i know that this just continued you know further solidified not just the idea of friendship that we have in our society but that spiritual bond that god has given us and just further solidified that in our life to be able to to move forward in different areas of our life together spiritually
0: yeah and for me um like i said that was a deeply transformative day and since that day as we connect the spirit has ratcheted it up in my life and not just andrew i don't want you to just like talk to him about the the mistakes you've made i want you to humble yourself uh, kill your pride and talk to him even about the stuff that's in your the desires of your heart like the stuff you've, you're not even close to doing, but there's this little inkling in your heart, like, I want to do that. I, I, I want to, whatever it is. And God has been inviting me to further crucify my pride and my shame, my feeling of isolation, and bring all of the intention and desire of my heart into the light. And I, as I've said, this, it was so transformative to know that uh, I can trust Andrew with my whole life, that as Christian men, we are just men. (laughs) There's nothing glorious or holy uh, about our life that is not glorious and holy about your life. We're just normal people, but we need to be rooted in that brutal humility that brutal humility that lowers us and, and brings vulnerability out because our culture is trying to, to shape us in this ideological framework, this image-obsessed framework, and biblical confession counterforms us. It, it, it produces humility and vulnerability in a culture that is fake and superficial. I want to encourage you today. Thanks, Andrew. Um, I want to encourage you just as we close here that um, you may not have somebody right now in your life that you can trust like Andrew and I would trust each other. I, I want to encourage you, number one, to begin asking God, who could I entrust my life to? And I want to encourage you to begin to walk toward the light in that way. Biblical confession, number four, last principle, it cultivates godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow. We read about that in 2 Corinthians, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There is no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow which lacks repentance results in spiritual death. I've given you here the definition. Worldly sorrow is I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry you found out. I'm sorry you're hurt because I got caught. I'm sorry about the consequences I now have to live in because of my choices and my actions. I'm sorry I look bad in people's eyes. I'm sorry I'm humiliated and ashamed. That's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a grieving for your sin and it's a a grieving for the heart of God. God, I'm sorry I've grieved you. You have made me in your image. You have a calling and a purpose for my life that's so much greater than this. I've grieved you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the hurt and the pain that I've caused you. What you've had to go through and endure because of my choices, that's godly sorrow. And biblical confession cultivates godly sorrow. So the spiritual practice of confession counterforms us through humility and vulnerability and loving biblical community. I just want to say again, we don't have the luxury anymore of being superficial and cultural Christians. We don't have the luxury of coming in here and putting our masks on once a week, no pun intended. (laughs) Didn't even think that one through, but because um, nobody does. Anyway, uh, we don't have that luxury of coming in here and having a one-inch-deep, superficial relationship with each other. We are going to get eviscerated and killed by the enemy in our culture. if We, could, we have to go deep in relationship and community together if we are actually going to thrive and survive, to rhyme. Uh, Ben I just want to invite Ben up and why don't you stand with me here's how I want to end Romans 8:1. there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ I want to say this very clearly to you today regardless of what you did last night last year or 20 years ago Regardless of what you did this morning on the way into church maybe, Jesus is not angry with you. He's not disappointed in you. Scripture says in Romans 5, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die while we were still sinners. In your worst moment, in your very worst moment, the most shameful, lowest of the low moment, the thing you'd like to take back more than anything in your life. While you were there, Jesus died for you. While you were still walking away from him, living in sin, he extended himself to you. John 3:16 For God so loved not so angry so frustrated God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son It's love that motivates the heart of God. It's love that calls you to come out of the darkness into the light. It's love that calls you to step into the freedom of the Spirit of God in the light of Christ. It's love that calls you to come out of secrecy and habitual sin. It's love that calls you out of that. It's love that motivates the heart of God, not anger. He sees what you're hiding and he still loves you. You need to hear that today. There is nothing you're hiding from God or others that disqualifies you from the love of God. I want you just to close your eyes and I wanna read this Psalm over you as we close. This is from David, Psalm 32, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me all of my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time. Don't let the day end today before you bring your life to the feet of Jesus in a new way let the godly pray to you while there is still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. That is the heart of the king for your life, to lead you in victory, to lead you in the kingdom vision that he has for you. Just with your eyes closed, I just want, I want you just, if you're able to, just say again, Jesus, I just, I surrender to you right now. And just even in this moment just say Father if there's anything that I've been hiding any area of my life that I've been hiding in darkness I I invite you I'm willing for you to expose that to your light. if there's anything hidden in me any secret sin any stuff that I'm too afraid to even call out into the light. I I invite you, Jesus, out of your great love and mercy to expose every hidden area of my life. I just want you to give just the Spirit, just a a second or two. And if he brings up a memory or a situation I want you just to, just between you and him, just to acknowledge that. Father, I just ask where hidden sin in, in this house, in our relationships, where hidden sin has prevented healing and deliverance. Father, I just ask in your name, you would bring those things into the light that you would fill people with faith right now to trust you and take you at your word that it's your love that calls us to step into the light it's your desire to heal and restore and renew and redeem that provokes your heart for us And so in Jesus' name, I just forbid you, enemy of God, from leveraging hiddenness and secrecy, even in this room right now, you just break every agreement that's been made with you, every attempt to conceal and hide because of shame or pride or fear. In Jesus' name, I just suspend the work of the enemy right now and his hold on the hearts and minds of of my friends this morning. And I just call out in unison with the Spirit of God, come in to the light. We believe it's for freedom you've set us free. Father, I pray that together as your church that you would call us to walk in greater levels of of vulnerability and humility, greater levels of confession for the sake of the world around us so that we can walk in the fullness of your power and your anointing so that my friends and I can experience the freedom and liberty that comes from being fully known by God and fully known by those we love and trust. Where the enemy has been given access and authority, I just ask Holy Spirit that you would point out those things to each one of us.